welcome to SGTM Talks. We hope you find this encouraging and inspiring. We come to our Bible reading. Peter is going to take us into the season of Advent, which you might be surprised doesn't particularly feel very Christmassy initially. And so he's told me to do the, today's reading in as doom-laden a voice as possible. <laughs> Here we go. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will never will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know what that time, when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with an assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. You may have seen this graffiti on a bumper sticker or uh, in a shop window or even on a mug. Jesus is coming. Look busy! It's intended in mockery of a certain kind of fundamentalist preaching, obsessed with the return of Christ in judgment. Now, if you belong to this preacher's church, not this church, if you belong to this preacher's church, God is like a grumpy manager, resenting every penny of the wages he is going to pay to his hard-pressed servants. If he comes back and finds you asleep or gone fishing, there will, literally, be hell to pay. Now, it is, of course, nonsense, but there is a dire truth about such preachers' churches that the mockery of that graffiti calls out. The kernel of truth is that they have literally turned being a Christian into hell. Because in that mindset, Jesus is coming, look busy, you are constantly under inspection, there is no rest allowed, and you had better be very afraid because everything will depend on how hard you tried. In this world, Jesus is someone you need to impress and somebody you need to hide the dreadful reality from. And in this world, life on earth is already a hell because it's a world with no peace, no trust, no love, and Jesus is your number one problem. Let's not go there. Mock the devil and he will flee, as Martin Luther said. It's a good joke, and it's good to expose the joke. 
because it does also expose some wormy little voices within us that secretly some of us may still half believe. When you heard those verses about coming on the clouds and the stars falling into the sky and so on this morning, if any of those voices that says, Jesus is coming, look busy, ah! if any of those voices were triggered for you this morning, then I hope the talk, this talks for you. When you hear it, I wonder how many of you thought, yes, of course, this is Jesus talking about the end of the world. Well, I also think it's talking about the end of the world, but only right at the very end. I think the first part of that, what the reading that we heard today, is talking about a particular time in history. It's talking about Jesus's ascension in AD 35, and at the end of the temple, something that happened in AD 70. And then we have the passage of the fig tree as a kind of hinge. And then I think the parable about the master returning is about the end of the world. But in such a way that it's also about what we're doing now here, about the Holy Spirit, and about opening the door, rather more than it is about disaster. In other words, I think it's about Advent. Now, I realize to say this goes against quite a bit of traditional theology that interprets um, the reading we had as all about the end of the world. But I have some conservative heavyweights on my side, and I also have a confession from none other than C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis also knew the passage about the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood and the Son of Man coming on the clouds and the gathering of God's chosen ones from the four corners. But Lewis's concern was the next verse. I tell you, not this generation shall not pass away until all these things have happened. This generation, meaning you lot, you disciples, listening to me, Jesus, now. C.S. Lewis said, this is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Because if Jesus said it was about the end of the world, he was wrong. We're still here. And this has led several heavyweight theologians to conclude Jesus clearly expected the end of the world and he was wrong. And what we're hearing is not the truth, but a mistaken first century prophet who got turned into a god by his overeager followers. As you can see, the stakes are quite high in the interpretation of this passage. It was so embarrassing that Schofield, the fundamentalist theologian who popularized the idea of the end times and the rapture, um, he altered his translation of the Bible so that he made Jesus say, I tell you, this race, meaning the Jewish people, will not pass away. But it's got nothing to do with that. It's the wrong word. It says, generation, you lot, listening to me. How about if we hear Jesus another way? How about if we recognize that the language he's been using about suns and moons and clouds is really old? How about if we see that it's a series of quotations from some Old Testament prophets? In Isaiah chapter 13, written sometime in the 700s BC, Isaiah is foretelling the destruction of Babylon, which was then the reigning power in the whole of the Middle East. And Isaiah says, they come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. 
Well, Isaiah was right. Babylon fell in 539 BC, but the sun is still shining. Isaiah's language is prophetic and poetic. It belongs to a time when events on earth were held to correspond to events in heaven. The sun will be darkened because the emperor of the known world, the emperor of Babylon, has fallen. In the same way, in Isaiah chapter 34, Isaiah is describing the fall of Edom, a kingdom in what we now call Jordan. And he says this, All the stars in the sky will be dissolved, and the heavens rolled up like a scroll, and all the starry host will fall, and the withered leaves from the vine like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Well, again, Isaiah was right. The Edomite kingdom was destroyed by the Babylonians about 30 years before the Babylonians themselves were destroyed. But the stars are still here. What I'm saying is that the cosmic language is the Old Testament's way to describe the fall of kingdoms and empires. Times when there is no light, where for the defeated nation there is nowhere to live, when you have no direction, when you have no value. When Peter gives his sermon in Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, he describes the coming of the Holy Spirit right then as a fulfillment of a prophecy from the prophet Joel. And Joel himself is partly quoting um, Isaiah. Peter says this, quoting Joel, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moons of blood before the coming in the great and the glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the sun is still shining as Peter is giving this, 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 this talk. Peter is in fact using Joel, who is in turn using Isaiah, to recognize that with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, a new world has begun, in which the old kingdoms won't make sense. So I'm saying that that language of suns and moons and so on has a history. It's about the fall of the bad empire, and it's introducing the bringing, coming of a new world. I also, in that context, want to talk about that phrase, coming on the clouds, coming on the clouds. It's a quotation, again, this time from the Old Testament prophet Daniel, chapter 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. So Jesus coming with the clouds is coming not back to earth, but coming into the presence of God. Not back to earth to judge everybody, but coming to, coming to the presence of God after his resurrection, at his ascension, taking humanity with him to pray everlastingly for us. And the reason I think this is very important is that Jesus himself quotes this very passage in his trial before the Sanhedrin Jewish court, just before his crucifixion. He quotes this very passage and he looks straight at the court and says, from now on, you will see this. So in Jesus's mind, this is not about the end of time. This is about him now. Jesus thought it was happening in the court's own life. 
So in that light, when we hear about the angels gathering in the people from all four corners of the earth, I think this is what Peter is also seeing in the book of Acts. In that same sermon, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for all your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. The angels are God's messengers, earthly and spiritual. All who are far off is me and you. I love that phrase where Jesus says, um, it will be gathered in from all the four winds of the earth. Well, right now we're from the north wind, aren't we? As you know from the temperature uh, this morning. But we are being gathered into the family. So what I'm saying is that when Jesus is talking about suns and moons and clouds um, and stars falling apart, I think he is talking here about his own death, about his resurrection, about his ascension, about the fall of all world kingdoms and the coming of the Holy Spirit. I don't think he's giving a graphic description of what it will be like at the end of time. This passage comes at the end of a very long bit of Jesus talking um, for selling for, um, in a long sermon. His disciples have been asking him, what will it be like at the end? And he says, um, he foretells the suffering and genocide of his own people by the Romans in revenge for the Jewish revolts at the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. That moment when the temple would be torn down and Israel as a kingdom, political territory, would be eradicated. But then he starts to tell the parable about the fig tree. So I'm saying that the first part of today's gospel finishes off what he's been saying about what's going to happen in the decades leading up to the fall of Jerusalem the terrible suffering of those days and the persecution of the new Christian believers. And he says there, it's inevitable because Jewish politics has made it inevitable. It's going to be dreadful and your best hope is to run to the hills and just hide. Run to the hills and hide, he says in verse 15. But I think it turns when he says that day, not those days, in that day, that day, I think, refers to what he's just said. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But as for that day, nobody knows. Now, that day is the day that heaven and earth passes away. And now he is talking about the day when heaven and earth will pass away, when time itself will run out of time. But Jesus' tone and message in this last bit are a bit different. It's nothing about running away to the hills. Nothing about hiding. Now he tells the parable about the servants in the house. Now we have a job to do. A mission. We are the servants of God. And he's given each of us a task and the resources of the house to do it. And we're told that it could be a long time before the master returns. Or it could be soon. You do not know when that time will come, he says. And the word for time that Jesus uses there is not chronos, the Greek chronos, meaning clock time, minutes, hours. It's kairos, which means opportunity, moment time. Chronos time is something you measure. Kairos time means the right moment. It's the time when something significant happens. 
It's um, the moment it the comes from um, the, the Greek, the moment in weaving, where you're weaving and you've got a loom and it pulls the strands apart. And you can, because they're apart, you can chuck the shuttle through the strands um, and, and make a new um, uh, uh, piece of cloth. Or it also comes from the idea that in battle there's a lot of people fighting each other and then suddenly two bodies will move apart and if you're an arrow shooter you can shoot. There is a moment of opportunity to shoot and get to your target. Now is the moment. Kairos sees it. A new life will open up. And the New Testament uses the word to talk about the moment when heaven breaks into the life of earth. Kairos means the moment when heaven breaks in. It means something really, really good. You have to remember also in the Old Testament that the coming of the Messiah is seen as a really good thing. So good that the trees of the field clap and the hills skip because it's the end to oppression and debt and the beginning of freedom and mercy. It's when bad things die and good things live. So the coming of Christ, the kairos, is the opportunity. And the fig tree says, summer is coming. Well, it's not summer here, it's Advent. The time of the church's year when the readings are about the end of time and God's judgment. Because we think about the coming of Christ and with looking forward to, we remember the first coming at Christmas and we look f- think about the second, the return, the final return of Christ. And lots of the pa- readings are about the prophets and the figures who saw Jesus coming and suffered for it. That's what these candles are for. Now it seems a bit of a strange idea because we tend to split things up and we see in the life of Jesus a life of miracles and compassion and welcome to the outcasts and then when we think about the second coming it's about judgment and scary end times and um, uh, stars falling from the sky. I think this gets it slightly the wrong way around. Actually Jesus's life is one where every encounter is a moment of judgment but it's a judgment that everyone whom he meets has to, has to make. And it's a judgment which reflects on them. Everyone Jesus meets, they have to decide, is this guy for real or not? Am I going to believe or am I just going to reject him? Will the sick believe enough that Jesus can heal them? Will the rich believe that the socially marginalized are in Or will they just go with what their nice middle-class parents taught them? Everyone, will you go with love? Or will you go with fear? Or money? Or the way things are? I think we should hear Jesus' closing words today, keep awake in that spirit. Jesus is talking about the end of earthly time, yes. But Jesus is also the Lord of time. And what for us is a point in the future the end of all time, is for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternal now. A kingdom that keeps breaking through into the present time to announce that the moment is here, now. It broke through in 1823, in 1923, in 2023. So this is how I hear keep awake. Keep awake to the values of the kingdom that moment of decision and judgment that Jesus always requires. It won't just happen. You keep having to decide for love. You keep having to decide whether to go with love, not fear. 
Keep awake for the moments when, like the people of Galilee, you need to go with the kingdom. Keep awake, I also think, means be ready for Jesus to come. In other words, be consistent. Do the right thing now. Don't put it off. Don't strategize. Be honest with God. Because if God is really for you, then you don't have to start worrying about what you can get away with and then later repent. Because then that sets, out, sets up as if God is kind of, you know, what, he wants to take all the pleasure in life away from you. And it's just not right. Just do the right thing now. Be consistent. Live with integrity. Keep awake. Keep awake for the kairos, the opportunity of the Lord's coming. I think the primary way you keep awake is by praying. I was about to write a paragraph upon this when I was thinking about this sermon to say we should read the newspapers and look at the, look at the, the, the news and stay awake to what's happening in the world. Actually, I decided that was nonsense because there's a lot of people who would like you to keep awake and they'd like you to keep awake to their newsletter um, and, and kind of like and subscribe. Um, and mostly it's about keeping you awake to stuff that's very scary. There's a different kind of awakeness. I think when you keep awake by praying, you keep awake to yourself and you keep awake to God. Good prayer should ask you, where are you right now? Where are your emotions and desires leading? Where are they being led to more faith? Where are you being led to more hope? What is God wanting to feeling about that? What's he longing to do for you? What's he longing to do for someone else? and inspiring you with good desires to pray for them. Could I just move forward one slide and recommend a book to you? I love this book. God, I have issues. Um, it's written from a, um, a point of view of um, uh, an Ignatian prayer where you're basically thinking about um, how you're feeling up or down and where God is leading you in that. But it's particularly brilliant because it allows you to say, God, I'm bored with you, I'm fed up, or God, I'm feeling depressed. Um, and these prayer, it's very good at kind of taking you through and helping you find God um, in the down as well as the up. Keep awake does not mean never take a rest. But it also does mean keep awake for the, watching for the things that kill off spiritual alertness. Here are some. Privilege kills alertness. Church of England went to sleep in the 18th century because the nation was getting rich and it was the church of the privileged. It forgot about the miners, it forgot about the working classes, it didn't protest against slaves, and it didn't notice the Industrial Revolution. It turned re religion into a hobby of the leisured and the respectable, until Wilberforce and Wesley and others came to shake it up. That was going to sleep. Boredom. We all get bored. Resignation. The feeling of hopeless despair. Cynicism. The feeling where you're disappointed all the time and no one ever gets it as right as you do. Those feelings sneak up on us really easily, and especially if you've been a Christian for a long time. And then sometimes they just harden into all we've got. And they are the enemies of keeping awake, not failing to read the newspapers. It's boredom, cynicism, despair. So I'd like to finish by recommending a spiritual energy drink. That particular book, um, Lord, I have God, I have issues. It's, it's extremely good by a guy called Mark Thibodeau. Let you remember the title. And I also have a suggested emendation to the graffiti.
Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to SGTM Talks. We hope you found this insightful and inspiring and can tune in again soon. In the meantime, try out our website, sgtm.org.